Hey folks, thanks for checking in. Um, as I read chapter three, um, I might stop and just kind of explain a few ideas that I think will help us better understand what's happening. Here we go, chapter three, hot water. Lenny Lawson stepped out of his trailer park office to burn a Paul Mall. Smoke drifted up past his mustache and light blue eyes and disappeared above his baseball cap. He looked out over the rows of mobile homes bunched together on a skinny strip of asphalt. Almost all the trailers were lined up in the same direction and, a, and set a couple steps apart. The airport was close and even longtime residents looked up when planes came in low, exposing their underbellies and rattling the windows. Lenny had spent his entire life in this place, all 43 years of it, and for the past dozen years he had worked as its manager. Lenny knew the druggies lived mostly on the north side of the trailer park, and the people working double shifts at restaurants or nursing homes lived mostly on the south side. The metal scrapers, the metal scrapers, scrappers, sorry, and can collectors lived near the entrance, and the people with the best jobs, sandblasters, mechanics, congregated on the park's snobby side behind the office in mobile homes with freshly swept porches and flower pots. Those on SSI were sprinkled throughout, as were the older folks who, quote, went to bed with the chickens and woke up with the chickens. <clears throat> as some park residents liked to say. Lenny tried to house the sex offenders near the druggies, but it didn't always work out. He had had to place one near the double shifters. Thankfully, the man never left his trailer or even opened the blinds. Someone delivered food and other necessities to him every week. College Mobile Home Park sat on the far sides the far south side of the city, on 6th Street, off College Avenue. It was bordered on one side by overgrown trees, shrubs, and sand pits, and on the other by a large truck distribution center. It was a 15-minute walk to the nearest gas station or fast food restaurant. There were other trailer parks nearby, surrounded by streets with modest, tawny brick homes and sharply pitched roofs. This was the part of Milwaukee where poor white folks lived. The Menominee River Valley cuts through the middle of the city and functions like its Mason-Dixon line, divided, dividing the predominantly black north side from the predominantly white south side. Milwaukeeans used to joke that the 16th Street Viaduct, which stretches over the valley, was the longest bridge in the world because it connected Africa to Poland. The biggest effort to change that came, to change that came in 1967 when 200 demonstrators, almost all of them black, gathered at the north end of the viaduct and began walking to Poland to protest housing discrimination. As the marchers approached the south side of the bridge, they heard the crowd before they saw it. Chants of "Kill, kill!" and "We want slaves!" rose up above the rock and roll music blasted from loudspeakers. Then the crowd appeared, a deep swell of white faces, upwards of 13,000 by some counts. Onlookers hurled bottles, rocks, piss, and spit down on the marchers. 
The black demonstrators marched. The white mob pulsed and seethed. And then something released. Some invisible barrier fell, and the white onlookers lurched forward, crashing down on the marchers. That's when the police fired the tear gas. This was 1967 again, folks. The marchers returned the next night and the night after that. They walked the 16th Street Viaduct for 200 consecutive nights. The city, then the nation, then the world took notice. 200 nights of protest. Sound familiar? Little changed. Also sound familiar? A 1967 New York Times editorial declared Milwaukee America's most segregated city. A supermajority in both houses had helped President Johnson pass the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But legislators backed by real estate lobbies refused to get behind his open housing law, which would have criminalized housing discrimination. It took Martin Luther King Jr. being murdered on a Memphis balcony and the riots that ensued for Congress to include a real open housing measure later that year in the 1968 Civil Rights Act, commonly called the Fair Housing Act. And a lot of this, you guys, if you've ever seen the movie Selma, is represented in that movie. The white working class Southside had, since the 1930s, made room for a small number of Hispanic families whose men had been recruited to work in the tanneries. In the 1970s, the Hispanic population began to grow. Instead of putting up another fight, whites began moving out, pushing further south and west. Poland became Mexico, a small enclave on the near south side of the city. The north side remained black. The east and west sides of the city, as well as the far south, where Lenny's trailer park sat, belonged to the whites. Open housing law or not, Milwaukee would remain one of the most racially divided cities in the nation. And I hope you get when they're saying like Poland, you know, Mexico, um, Africa, you know, they called it Poland because most of the white people that lived in Milwaukee were from Poland. At least, you know, their ancestors, maybe parents, grandparents um, emigrated from Poland. And then, you know, of course, Mexico being more immigrants from a different place, <clears throat> Mexico. Lenny stamped out a cigarette and ducked back into the office, which was situated in the middle of the trailer park, near its only entrance and exit. <clears throat> it was cramped and windowless. It was a cramped and windowless space, paper cluttered and lit by a naked bulb screwed into the ceiling. The old fax machine, calculator, and computer were covered with grease smudges. In the summer, a wet spot grew on the thin maroon carpet under the leaky air conditioning unit. In the winter, a space heater buzzed softly on a plastic bucket. Over the years, Lenny had added some flourish, flourishes, stag antlers, a Pabst Blue Ribbon plaque, a poster of a flushed pe pheasant. Hey, Lenny greeted Susie as he took a seat behind his desk. Susie Dunn was on her feet as usual, sorting mail into the mailboxes that made up one side of the office. She was not placing letters in their boxes as much as punching them in there, fast and hard. It was her way. When Susie smoked, she sucked the cigarette down, keeping her hand close to her mouth. She couldn't talk without also sweeping or scrubbing or rearranging patio furniture. 
It was as if she'd fall over like a toy top if she stopped spinning. Susie's husband liked to call her the queen of the trailer park. Other people settled, settled for office Susie, so as not to confuse her with heroin Susie. Here's your unemployment check, Susie said to a letter. Now, why don't you pay some rent? If she don't pay her rent, she ain't going to be living here much longer. She can move back to the south side or live in the ghetto. The office door opened and in walked Miss Mites, barefoot. At 71, she was a taut and unfrail woman with a shock of a cotton white hair, a face crisscrossed with wrinkles and no teeth. Hey, Granny, Lenny said with a smile. He, like everyone else in the park, thought Miss Mites was crazy. Guess what I did today? I threw a bill in the garbage can. Miss Mites looked at him sidelong with her bunched up face. She had almost yelled the words. Hmm, is that right? Lenny answered, looking at her. I'm no dummy. Hmm, well, I've got some bills for you. You can pay mine. Ha! Miss Mites said walking out to start her day, pushing a grocery cart and collecting cans. Miss Mites paid the bills with her SSI check. She cashed in the cans to give her mentally challenged adult daughter snack money or, after a nice haul, a trip to Chuck E. Cheese. Lenny grinned and went back to his paperwork until the door swung open again. <clears throat> People who got half an ear everywhere else got a full one from Lenny. It was up to him to keep track of rents and maintenance requests, to screen tenants and deliver eviction notices. But it was also up to him to listen to the trailer park, to know it. Know who was current and who was behind, who was pregnant, who was mixing their methadone with Xanax, whose boyfriend had just been released. Sometimes I'm a shrink, he liked to say. Sometimes I'm the village asshole. The owner of the trailer park was named Tobin Charney. He lived 70 miles away in Skokie, Illinois, but visited the trailer park every day except Sunday. He paid office Susie $5 an hour and reduced her rent to $440. Tobin waived Lenny's rent and paid him a salary of $36,000 a year in cash. Tobin had a reputation of being flexible and understanding, but no one thought of him as a pushover. A hard man with squinting eyes and an unsmiling face. He had a gruff, hurried way about him. He was 71, the same age as Miss Mites, and worked out regularly, keeping a gym bag in the trunk of his Cadillac. He was not chummy with his tenants or amused by them. He did not pause to ruffle their children's hair. He did not pretend he was anything he was not. His father had been a landlord and at one point owned almost 600 units. All Tobin desired was one address and 131 trailers. But in the final week of May 2008, he found himself on the verge of losing them. All five members of Milwaukee's license committee had refused to renew Tobin's license to operate the trailer park. Alderman Terry Witkowski, a longtime Southsider with a pinkish face and silver hair, was leading the charge. Witkowski pointed to the 70 code violations that neighborhood services had documented in the past two years. He brought up the 260 police calls made from the trailer park in the previous year alone. He said the park was a haven for drugs, prostitution, and violence. 
he observed that an unconnected plumbing system had recently caused raw sewage to bubble up and spread under 10 mobile homes. The license committee now considered the trailer park, quote, an environmental biohazard. On June 10th, the city council called the Common Council in Milwaukee, would vote. If the licenses committee's decision stood, Tobin would be out of a job and his tenants would be out of a home. That's when the news people showed up with their gelled hair and shoulder-mounted cameras that looked like weapons. They interviewed residents, including some outspoken critics of Tobin. So again, to catch you up to speed, this chapter is about a trailer park. It starts with Lenny, who runs the trailer park with his wife, who is um, Susie. And now we're learning a little bit about um, the actual owner of the trailer park, Tobin, who lives pretty far away, over an hour away. And this is what he owns, and this is all he owns. This is where he gets his income. So he's there all the time. But he doesn't do a good job taking care of, of the place, apparently. And there's been a ton of violations. And there's been a group of people that have got together that want to shut it down. The media paints us as ignorant half-breeds, Mary was saying to Tina outside her trailer. They said this was the shame of the South Side, Tina replied. Both women had been in the park for years, and both had strong, wind-blown faces. My son hasn't slept because of this, Mary went on. Neither have I or my husband. You know, I work two jobs. I work hard. I mean, I can't afford to go anywhere else. Miss Mites walked up and put her face right up next to Tina's. Tina took a step back. That son of a bitch, Miss Mites began. I'm going to call the alderman, and I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. That son, see, but that won't help, Tina cut in. I'm going to go, and I'm going to give that alderman a piece of my mind, Miss Mites replied. That little son of a bitch. Tina and Mary shook their heads as Miss Mites stomped off. Then Mary turned serious. And to be told to move to the north side is not funny, she said. It's not funny. She shook a little. She shook a little and broke eye contact to keep from crying. That was the heart of it. What trailer park residents feared the most. When Mary and Tina and Miss Mites and the whole trailer park talked about having to leave, what they were talking about was the possibility of having to move into the black ghetto. Office Susie was one of several residents who had previously lived on the north side, where her adult son had had a gun stuck in his face. The alderman said that this is a ghetto slum, she vented. I'll show you a ghetto. The situation twisted Susie's stomach so much that her son hid her pain pills, fearing she'd swallow a handful. The trailer park had 10 days before the final vote. So tenants hosted a barbecue for the media, began calling local representatives and started to recite what they would say to the common council. Rufus, the junk collector, with his trim red beard and distant blue eyes, wrote up his comments in practice. And then I'll say, who has been behind on their rent, $500? And the hands will go up, and I could keep going, 700, 1,000? And all the hands would go up, 
Rufus planned to end his speech by saying, This is no slumlord. This is not a bad man. If his speech didn't work, then the trailer park was closed. Rufus was planning to put a reciprocating saw to the trailers and sell the aluminum. Tobin worked with his tenants. He let them pay here and there. When tenants lost their jobs, he let some of them work off the rent. He would sometimes tell Lenny, they may be slow paying, but they're good people. He lent a woman money to attend her mother's funeral. When the police picked up the drunks responsible for cutting grass and collecting litter in the trailer park, Tobin bailed them out of jail. Tobin's negotiation with tenants were rarely committed to writing, and sometimes tenants remembered things differently from when Tobin did. A tenant would say she owed $150, and Tobin would say it was $250 or $600. Tobin once forgot that a tenant paid a year's worth of rent in advance after winning a worker's compensation claim. Trailer park residents had a word for this, being Tobined. Most chalked this up to old age and old age and forgetfulness, though Tobin was only forgetful in one direction. It took a certain skill to make a living off of the city's poorest trailer park, a certain kind of initiative. Tobin's strategy was simple. He would walk right up to a drug addict or a metal scrapper or a disabled grandmother and say, I want my money. He would pound on the door until a tenant answered. It was almost impossible to hide the fact that you were home. It was hard to hide much of anything. Office Susie knew when your check arrived, she put it in your mailbox. And Lenny could plainly see if you had enough money to buy cigarettes or beer or a new bike for your kid, but not enough to pay the rent. When a tenant opened the door, Tobin would thrust out his hand and say, You got something for me? Sometimes he knocked for several minutes. Sometimes he walked around the trailer, slapping the aluminum siding. Sometimes he asked Lenny or another tenant to rap on the back door while he, while he assailed the front. He called tenants at work, even talked to their supervisors. When caseworkers or ministers would call and say, please, or just wait a minute, Tobin would reply, pay me the rent. Tobin was not going to forgive and forget losing hundreds or thousands of dollars or settle for half of what he was owed or price a trailer below market value. When tenants fell behind, he had three options. He could let it slide and watch his income fall. He could begin eviction proceedings, or he could start a conversation. Option one was a non-option. Tobin was a landlord to make a living, and if he was too lenient, he could lose his business. But Tobin also did not evict most tenants who owed him. Pushing tenants out and pulling new ones in costs money, too. In an average month, 40 of Tobin's tenants were behind, nearly one-third of the trailer park. The average tenant owed $340. But Tobin only evicted a handful of tenants each month. A landlord could be too soft or too hard. The money was in the middle. With the third route, and his tenants were grateful for it, though often not at first. Jerry Warren wasn't. Jerry used to ride with the outlaws, a biker gang, and was covered in tattoos, <clears throat> several of which he had acquired in prison. Eviction notice in hand, Tobin had whopped the side of Jerry's trailer, an aqua blue 700-footer Jerry had painted himself. Jerry balled up the notice and threw it in Tobin's face, yelling, Tobin, I don't give a shit about this fucking eviction. And Lenny, I don't care how old you are. 
I'll still take to whooping your ass something good. Lenny and Jerry exchanged words, but Tobin was unfazed. He had begun a conversation, and a few days later, after he had cooled off, Jerry would pick it up. He offered to clean up the trailer park and attend to some maintenance concerns if Tobin canceled the eviction. Tobin accepted the offer. He took a different tack with Lorraine Jenkins. A month before the licenses committee had rejected Tobias Tobin's renewal application, he had given her a ride to eviction court in the Cadillac. Lorraine received SSI for learning impairments attributed to the childhood fallout of an attic window. Her monthly check was $714. Her monthly rent was $550, utilities not included. Lorraine had been late with the rent several times before Tobin finally took her to court. It's just hard to give up that rent, Lorraine admitted. You've got to wonder if the street people don't have the right idea. Just live on the street. Don't have to pay rent to nobody. She sat in the passenger seat while another tenant named Pam Ranke, a pregnant woman with straight cut bangs and freckles, sat in the back. In court, Tobin offered them both stipulation agreements, a civil courts version of a plea bargain. If they st stuck to a tight payment schedule, Tobin would dismiss the eviction. If they deviated, Tobin could obtain a judgment of eviction and activate the sheriff's eviction squad with something called a, quote, writ of restitution, without having to take Lorraine or Pam to court again. Throughout his fight with Witkowski, Tobin had worried that tenants would hold their money until the fate of the trailer park was settled. But most tenants were right on paying. Lorraine wasn't one of them. Already behind, she had withheld June's rent because she didn't know if the park would be shut down. If she had to move anyway, she figured she might as well pocket the $550. Lorraine was pushing her luck. Besides owing back rent, she had been one of the critics who had appeared on the nightly news, where she admitted to seeing prostitutes and drug dealers in the park. Phyllis Gladstone, the most vocal supporter of Witkowski, had put Lorraine up to it. When Tobin found out about everything, he recalled that the Lorraine hadn't fulfilled her stipulation agreement. That meant he could ask the sheriff's eviction squad to remove her. So, he did. Soon, a letter from the Milwaukee Sheriff's Office arrived in Lorraine's mailbox. Printed on a bright yellow sheet of paper was the following message. Current occupant. You are hereby notified that the Milwaukee County Sheriff's Office has a court order, writ of restitution slash assistance, requiring your immediate remo removal from the premises. Failure to vacate immediately will be cause for the sheriff to remove your belongings from the premises. If an eviction is necessary, risk of damages or loss of property shall be borne by you, the defendant, after delivery by the sheriff to the place of safekeeping. Movers will not take food left in your refrigerator or free freezer. Remove food items. The words had terrified Lorraine. It showed. Her emotions projected onto her face like a movie screen. When she was happy, she beamed, flashing a gap-toothed smile. And when she was depressed, her whole face drooped as if being pulled down by a hundred tiny lead sinkers. At 54, Lorraine lived alone in a clean white trailer, Though she prayed to one to be reunited with her two adult daughters and her grandson, who, along with God, occupied the center of her universe. She was tub-bellied, with a broad face and freckled white skin. Years ago, she had been gorgeous and liked to dress in a way that made boys lean out of their car windows. 
Lorraine still cared about her appearance and would leave her eyeglasses at home because she thought they made her look like a dead fish. When she wanted to look nice, she put on jewelry and had a, she had acquired as a young woman used safety pins to expand the necklace chains so they fit. Smelling of sweat and vinegar, her brown hair in disarray, Lorraine stepped into the office, wringing the yellow paper like a dish rag. After a brisk ex exchange, Tobin let Lorraine outside and called after Susie. Susie, Susie, Tobin yelled. What, Tobin? Take her to the bank, will you? She's going to get some money for the rent. Come on, Susie said, stepping briskly to her car. <clears throat> when Susie returned with Lorraine, Tobin was in the office, shuffling through papers. How much? He asked Susie. I have 400, Lorraine answered. I'm not calling off the eviction, Tobin said, still looking at Susie. Lorraine owed another 150 for that month. Lorraine just stood there. Tobin turned to Lorraine. When can you get me the other 150? Tonight, okay? Tobin cut her off. Okay, you give it to Susie or Lenny? Lorraine didn't have it. She had used $150 of her rent money to pay a defaulted utility bill with the hope of having her gas turned back on. She wanted to take a hot shower, scrub away the smell. She wanted to feel clean, maybe even something closer to pretty, like she used to feel when she danced on tables for men, back when her daughters were babies. She wanted the water to soothe the pain of her fibromyalgia, which she likened to a million knives going up her back. She had prescriptions for Lyrissa and Celebrex, but didn't always have enough for the copay. Hot water would help, but $150 wasn't enough. We Energies accepted her money, but didn't turn on her gas. Lorraine felt stupid for paying. Apparently she owed more than that. Susie made out a receipt on a piece of scrap paper and stapled it to, to Lorraine's eviction notice. You should go ask your sister for the rest, she, she suggested, picking up the fax machine's phone and dialing a number she knew by heart. Yes, hello? I need to stop an eviction at College Mobile Home Park, Susie said to the sheriff's office. For Lorraine Jenkins in W46, she took care of her rent. Office Susie had canceled the sheriff's deputies, but Tobin could reactivate them if Lorraine didn't come up with the rest of what she owed. Lorraine sulked back to her trailer. It was so hot inside that she thought lukewarm water might run in the shower. She didn't turn on the fan. Fans made her dizzy. She didn't open up a window. <clears throat> she just sat on the couch. She called a few local agencies. After several unsuccessful tries, she said blankly to the floor, I can't think of anything else. Lorraine lay down on the couch, tried to ignore the heat, and slept. Um... Yeah, open up your worksheet and complete your comprehension questions if you weren't doing that during this chapter. Thanks a lot.